0: I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. The Ottoman Empire has been many things throughout its long history. One of the greatest and gravest threats to Christian Europe, a source of inspiration for Renaissance and Reformation thinkers an exoticized realm of sultans, slaves, and harems, an equal and key partner in the European system of international relations, and near its end, quote, the sick man of Europe. The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars, and Caliphs by Professor Mark David Baer and published by Basic Books charts the rise and fall of the Ottoman Empire, not just dealing with its sultans and military expansions, but also a wide range of topics like the roles played by women and minorities in Ottoman society, Mark David Baer is a professor of international history at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He is the author of five books, including Honored by the Glory of Islam, Conversion and Conquest in Ottoman Europe, which won the Albert Harani Prize, and Sultanic Saviors and Tolerant Turks, Writing Ottoman Jewish History, Denying the Armenian Genocide, which won the Dr. Sona Aronian Book Prize for Excellence in Armenian Studies. Today, Mark and I talk about the Ottoman Empire's rise and quote-unquote fall, a term that may mischaracterize how the Ottoman Empire actually transformed after its heights under Selim and Suleiman. Let's talk about the Ottoman Empire's legacy, both for Europe and the wider world. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review Books podcast. Perhaps it's best to start at the beginning. How does the Ottoman Empire begin?
1: Thank you for having me on the show. The Ottoman story begins at the end of the 13th century, century, so in the late 1200s. And it begins with a, one group of Turkic peoples among many. As your, your listeners will note, Mongols and Turks dominated West Asia since the 11th century. And the, the person I'll talk about now is Osman, the founder of the dynasty. He was one of the many Muslim Turkic nomadic horsemen who migrated to Christian majority Anatolia. Anatolia is um, the Asian part of modern day Turkey. And he was part of this, this large wave of thousands of Turkic herdsmen with their sheep and horses that were migrating westward. And this was all part of the expansion of the great Mongol empire from East and Central Asia. Now in Turkey, they like to say that Osman was sent west into northwestern Anatolia, into northwestern Turkey by Another Turkic Sunni dynasty called the Seljuks, but actually, it looks like the historical record shows us that the that Osman or his father was actually sent there by the Mongols, and the Ottomans under Osman and under his son Orhan actually paid tribute to the Mongols uh, in for another uh, into the middle of the 14th century. So, so, but who was this Osman? Osman, as I mentioned, was this Turkic chieftain, really. And he surrounded himself with a motley crew of mounted nomadic or semi-nomadic warriors. So these, these men had bows and arrows and swords, and they included Muslims, Muslim Sufis, mystics, also a lot of Christian brothers in arms. So most of Osman's retainers were actually Christians. They were Greeks and Armenians. And also, so the Ottoman Osman and and his his crew battled against Muslim and Christian alike in Northwestern and Western Anatolia. And that's where he established something, a small area under his rule. He, He captured four castles. And from this, the dynasty would grow into an empire.
0: And, you know, let's talk about the empire at its largest and its most expansive what parts of the world does the Ottoman Empire cover?
1: Well, your listeners are, of course, interested in, in Asian history and Asian culture. The Ottomans were very much an Asian empire, no question about that. In Asia, they would eventually spread east in, across Southwest Asia and into parts of Central Asia. They also would conquer parts of Iran. They also would move into becoming an Indian Ocean power in the 16th century, also in the 16th century, they would send their Navy as far into Asia as Indonesia and Southeast Asia. So there's very much an Asian power empire and the Ottomans always remembered that Asian, that Mongol inheritance, and it played out in different ways in their politics and in their architecture and in their culture. The Ottomans were also an African empire. So the Ottomans would expand in the 16th century again, into North Africa. They would conquer Egypt. They would have allies and tribute paying regions stretching all the way across North Africa, all the way to not including uh, Morocco. So they're also an African power. The Ottomans also battled and had allies and sometimes Navy bases in the Red Sea region in Yemen and also down the East coast of Africa. And what I highlight in the book, is how the Ottomans were also a European empire. So at their height in the 17th century, the Ottomans controlled almost as much as a quarter of Europe. And this included stretching into Southern Poland, the Ottomans besieged, but weren't able to conquer Vienna, but they did hold all of Southeastern Europe for 500 years or so, so Hungary, Greece, and these territories. So the Ottomans are very much an Afro-Eurasian empire. In the early days, the Ottoman empire largely matched the Byzantine empire, but then they expanded beyond it.
0: And so how were they able to, I guess, both expand their territorial holdings, but also to kind of maintain control over these various different populations around Europe, Asia, and Africa?
1: The Ottomans had a number of strategies that without we could just discuss them objectively. We don't have to um, uh, give them any moral value or or condemn them or or praise them. But one, they had some very clever policies that enabled the the dynasty to stay in power. So one family stayed in power for over 600 years. How do they do this? One policy for three centuries or so was actually fratricide. What I mean by this is that when a, a sultan would send his sons out to the provinces to rule as governors, to train in the arts of war and administration. When the Sultan passed away, his sons then would race back to the capital to be enthroned, but along the way, they would have to literally battle their other brothers and the surviving brother would then be the one who was enthroned and the surviving brother then would put to death all of his male relatives from infants to elderly men who he thought could be a threat. So this policy of fratricide allowed the Ottomans to keep hold of power and and keep the dynasty intact and the empire intact for the first three and a half centuries until they turned to primogeniture. That was one policy. Another policy that was unique and also successful was the way that they recruited men and women for the dynasty and administration. So women, they brought in as, slave, uh, as slaves from Southern Russia, from the Caucasus, they brought them in and they converted them to Islam. And these became the royal women. And these royal women then would give birth to future sultans. At the same time, the empire brought in Christian boys from the Balkans, from Southeastern Europe, also from Southwest Asia. And they, they took them as a tax. They took one out of every 40 um, Christian boys in the empire in their own regions. This completely went against Islamic law. But an Ottoman historian wrote that necessity justified what was illegal. And this is exactly the principle upon which the Ottomans engaged in this policy. So they, they brought these boys to the, to the palace. They trained them. Um, they converted them to Islam, and they trained them, and based on their abilities, they became even the, either the, the members of the infantry elite, the elite infantry, the Janissaries, or they were trained to become the administrators, the viziers. So So these two policies, as brutal and uh, as they were, enabled the Ottomans to expand and to become a, a world empire in those first three centuries of their rule. This is part of it. At the same time, The Ottomans were very practical and uh, and tolerated Christian and Jewish subjects, allowing them to retain their religion and to go about their lives as Christians or Jews and not have to convert. So it was these two mechanisms, on the one hand, allowing most of the subject population and the Ottoman Empire was majority Christian at least for the first three centuries, of its existence. So most subjects are allowed to retain their religion and culture and languages, while a minority then is recruited and compelled to serve the dynasty as slaves and to make it strong and powerful.
0: I'd like to talk about maybe some of the two of the sultans, kind of who who are around um, during the heights of Ottoman power. Uh, and Let's start with the first one, you know, Selim I, who I think is responsible for a lot of the expansion um, of the Ottoman Empire. Can you talk a bit more about, about Selim I and what his rule was like?
1: Well, Selim is very important as a ruler because he's the sultan that conquered the Middle East. So what I mean by that is he defeated the Mamluk Empire of Egypt, another Sunni Muslim Turkic empire that was based in Cairo. And by conquering Egypt, the Ottomans were able to take the Muslim heartland of Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and also uh, Western Arabia. They were able to conquer Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem, the three Muslim holy cities. And so so this was was part of um, what made Selim so significant for world history and for Ottoman history. At the same time, Selim also was, (coughs) was able to, defeat the greatest Ottoman rival in Asia in the East, which was the Safavid empire um, based in what is today Iran. So Selim was able to counter and defeat in battle, um, Ismail and who was leading this upstart new threat, uh, this Shi'i dynasty threatening the Sunni Ottoman dynasty. So this also is an important aspect for Middle Eastern and world history, because because of that struggle, that political struggle between the majority Sunni Ottomans and the majority Shi'i Safavids, we have a hardening of religious identities and a, a confirmation of this clash between Sunni
0: and Shi'i that we still have to this day. And then obviously after after Suleyman is is Suleiman. And Suleiman is. Solomon is one of those leaders who who seems to kind of transcend the the, the historical context he's in. Um, just kind of pulling some references to Solomon kind of throughout even modern culture. I mean, there's a there's a relief of Solomon in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Solomon is one of the leaders you can pick in the Civilization video games. He's uh, he's a buddy of your main character in one of the Assassin's Creed games. Solomon is like one of these is, is is a leader who's kind of transcends the historical context he's in. Um, and so what makes Suleiman this kind of really central figure, not just in Ottoman history, but also in world history? Suleiman
1: lived during the age of Henry VIII and Charles V. And Charles V was his main rival. And Charles V was the Holy Roman Holy Roman Emperor, the, the head of the Habsburg Empire based in Vienna. And Suleiman claimed that actually. Charles V shouldn't be the Emperor of the Habsburgs or the Holy Roman Empire, but rather Suleiman should have been. Because since the time of Mehmet II who conquered Constantinople, Ottoman rulers had proclaimed themselves to be the Caesar along with being the Khan, a Mongol title, Turkic Mongol title, along with being the Sultan, a Middle Eastern title. They had claimed that actually they were the rightful inheritors of the Holy Roman Empire, not only because they conquered the Byzantine Empire, which was the Eastern Roman Empire, the last remaining part of the Roman Empire, not only because they conquered that territory, but also because they had a vision. They believed that they would conquer Rome and they would unite East and West under one religion and one empire and one dynasty. Now that religion was Islam. Nevertheless, Suleiman then took this to to even to another level and he actually had a crown made for himself a four-tiered crown which incorporated the the crown of the holy roman emperor as well as the papal tiara so and he wore this crown as he marched west with his army to conquer vienna that was the attempt in 1529 it failed but along the way in belgrade he had triumphal columns established like Roman victory columns. And he sat in his tent, and he greeted Western ambassadors wearing this crown. And so this made a huge impression on Western Europe, they were afraid of the Ottomans, they were impressed by the Ottomans, they began to doubt, perhaps Charles, V's claim to being the greatest ruler of Europe. So, so this made a huge impact on Europe. Plus the fact that the Ottomans under Suleiman were expanding east and west, taking Baghdad, um, besieging Vienna. So all of these, in all of these ways, we have, um, Suleiman has left such such an impression upon us to this day. Also the architecture um, that he built, his mosque, which sits on the highest hill in Istanbul. So he made a huge impression and Europeans, Western Europeans, Central Europeans,
0: um, have been writing about him since that time. So, in in your book, after after Suleiman's death, you you try to avoid calling the post-Suleiman period a decline. Um, first of all, why 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 would you want to avoid using that term? And then, how did the Ottoman Empire change after Suleiman's death? It's a good question.
1: I don't use the word decline right away, especially because the Ottoman Empire. Actually, continued to expand into the 17th century. It did not reach its greatest territorial extent under Suleiman, as people often say. It actually, was under the reign of during the reign of Mehmed the Fourth in the middle of the 17th century, when the Ottomans conquered the large island of Crete, and also when they their armies conquered parts of southern Poland and moved into Ukraine. It's actually that is when they reached their greatest extent. So, if we speak of territorial decline, and let's say a retraction of Ottoman territory, that's going to begin at the turn of the 18th century. So so we could think about decline in terms of political control, that is fine. But the problem with the word decline is it's been used as a sort of moral, it's been given moral valence. Um, The word decline has gone along with other metaphors and other adjectives, which are quite pejorative. Having to do with corruption and and so on. Well, if we just look at what was happening, what Ottoman historians like to talk about is transformation. The the government, the military, the economy, the society, the approaches to Islam held by the elites. All of these began to change in this at the end of the 16th century. So there were transformations. The the central government, centrally controlled economy began to open up. The centric, controlled military began to open up. We have an expansion, we have new powers, new um, shareholders in power. So no longer is it just the sultan, but it becomes also his family has a say in power, the royal women moving into the 17th century. Also, the grand viziers, the prime ministers, become a power faction. So does the elite Infantry Corps, the Janissaries, they become a power faction, able to seat and unseat um, sultans. So you have these different competing factions. Also outside the palace, you have the religious scholars, the jurists. So there's four competing factions. And because of this, we see a, a change in the governmental system. It doesn't mean it's a decline. It means it's a change. There are also, as I mentioned, there's economic and military changes in terms of the fighting force, in terms of tax collection. So it is, it is in many ways a new empire, beginning with the time when Osman II is actually murdered, the first Sultan to be deposed and killed. This is at the, in the early part of the 17th century. Then we could say it's moving into a different. A different empire. One scholar has even said that the Ottomans moved to a system that's more like a limited monarchy than a absolutist rule. Now, whether this means its decline, scholars today don't agree that's a decline, but rather
0: a transformation. I want to shift a bit now and talking about what Ottoman society is like. Um, We've we've talked a lot about sultans and armies and battles, Um, but the Ottoman Empire. I mean, in some ways, it's because it's an empire, has very large populations of ethnic minorities. Um, and the Ottomans, at least at the kind of throughout much of its history, although it changes near the end, as you note, seems to be more tolerant towards minority groups than their European counterparts. Some groups, like the Jewish community, even start to put quite a lot of faith in the Ottoman regime. I think you note they start using quite, um, what's the word, um, messianic language about, about the Sultan. First of all, I guess kind of where does this top-down tolerance come from? And how are, and then inversely, how are minority groups in the Ottoman Empire kind of seeing uh, seeing their Ottoman rulers?
1: The tolerance in the Ottoman uh, Empire comes from a, uh, several sources. One is the pragmatic nature of the Ottomans. The Ottoman dynasty does everything it can, whether it is legal or illegal, to, to, to build their power, to stay in power. They're practical. They believe in recruiting the best people to build up their, uh, the royal family, the women of the royal family, and also to, to build up the administration and the military. And they had stereotypical views about different groups of people. So they believed, for example, that Croatians would be best at being the Grand Vizier. And they believed that Jews would be the best as the Sultan's privy physician. So they had this whole range of stereotypes and beliefs, and they, they, they put people into different career paths, sometimes based on the group in which they were born. So the Ottoman Empire contained a marvelous just amount of religious, ethnic, racial uh, diversity. In the palace, again, the Ottomans brought in two separate cores of eunuchs. So they had eunuchs from the Caucasus, literally from the Caucasus, Caucasian eunuchs. And they had these eunuchs guard the the Sultan and his pages in that part of the palace. Then they brought, they developed a core of eunuchs who originated in Sudan or Ethiopia. And these eunuchs they used to guard the harem, the the private quarters of the palace and the sultan's family after the 16th century. So they believed in um, and and they also brought in Jewish women to serve as mediators between the harem and the outside world. So there's a long list of different types of people that they employed around themselves. The empire itself was an incredible, um, incredibly diverse. So, The question is about tolerance and what we mean by tolerance. So tolerance in this pre-modern sense is literally tolerating, putting up with, um, just literally allowing people to live. It's not coexistence. It's not equality. There was no legal equality in the Ottoman Empire. Muslims and men and free people had a superior legal position to Christians and Jews, slaves, and women. So we're not speaking about... Tolerance as in, you have your religion, I have mine, they're equal, but tolerance in the sense of, this is the rule of the land, that the sultan, as long as you're loyal, you are allowed to live and to, as I mentioned earlier, speak your language, uh, pray the way you want to pray, and so on, so that's, so that's what tolerance is. Now, tolerance as it is, as minimal an understanding of tolerance as this is, is still superior to what was happening, for example, to Jews in the rest of Europe where Jews were massacred, expelled, forcibly converted. The Ottomans took in as many as 100,000 Jews fleeing persecution in Spain and Portugal, took them in, allowed them to become Jews, again, if they'd been forcibly converted to Catholicism. And so because of this, Jews had a a very positive image of the Ottomans and of Muslims in general. So this is what we mean by tolerance. Now tolerance, this tolerance, Ottoman tolerance comes from their Islamic inheritance. It also comes from their Mongol inheritance, both the religious tolerance and the live and let live aspect. Tolerance, though, is something that can be given, it can be taken away. And at the end of empire, in the 19th century, the Ottomans turned from tolerance to equality. So by law, from the middle of the 19th century, every Ottoman subject was legally equal. So they, they dropped tolerance as a governing principle. They um, put equality, legal equality in its place, but it never took hold and this is why we see at the end of empire, in the 19th century, the first massacres of Armenians. There hadn't been massacres of Christians in the empire. That hadn't happened. But when they moved away from tolerance and tried different experiments with parliamentary democracy and constitutionalism and equality, the whole thing broke down. And that's, and that's what we see at the end of empire.
0: And, and- and we'll get talking more about, about the end of the Ottoman Empire, I think, in my question after this one. But what is it alongside kind of the attempts to build equality and tolerance is also, I think, especially as we get to the very end of Ottoman Empire, we see this kind of the rise of nationalism and the rise of, um, of Turkish nationalism. In some ways, you have, you have all these various competing ways to set up the foundation of whatever the future Ottoman Empire or what comes after it is going to be, and, and Turkish nationalism wins out.
1: And there, there, were, there were different experiments at the end of empire, the last century of empire, different experiments to try to hold the, th- the whole thing together. So I mentioned that the territory started to contract, the territory of the empire started to contract beginning in the 18th century. And with that, we also see the rise of the Ottomans' new arch enemy, which was Russia. And Russia is pressing from without. The Ottomans begin to lose their territories You see in the 19th century, the rise of nationalism among the Greeks and Serbs. This leads to an independent Greece. This leads to an independent Serbia. And you see the foreign powers like Russia beginning to pressure the Ottomans. So there are these external pressures within the empire. There is nationalism of all kinds. There are also, but the the center is trying to hold on and trying different measures to gain or to keep the allegiance of the subject. So they try equality. They try to say, they try this policy of Ottomanism that everyone is equal so long as they're loyal to the Sultan but there's these competing nationalistic urges. So Turkish nationalism actually develops later than these other nationalisms, Armenian and Greek and so on but What the Ottomans try to do, and we see this under Abdul Hamid II in the late 19th century, he tries to re, uh, what's the right word, he tries to keep hold of his empire by gaining especially the allegiance of his Muslim subjects. So we see not a Turkish nationalism under Abdul Hamid II, but a turn toward an Ottoman Muslim nationalism and trying to gain the loyalty of, of everyone that way of his Muslim subjects, really, in a sense, turning against his Christian and Jewish subjects, well, Christians especially. Abdülhamid hamid II is deposed, of course, by the Committee of Union and Progress and their leaders. And the last decade of Ottoman rule, the, the power is in the hands of these revolutionaries. And these revolutionaries are the ones that you mentioned, turn more toward a Turkish Muslim nationalism. And this will, really be the end of any possibility for coexistence amongst all the Ottoman subjects. It's the Committee of Union and Progress that then order the annihilation of the Armenian subjects in during the, the fog of the First World War. And, and the First World War, siding with Germany against their rival Russia and wiping out their own subjects, their Armenian population. These will lead, in fact, to the fall
0: of the dynasty
1: after the, sec- after the First World War.
0: So I want to take a kind of a step back and continue talking about Ottoman society before I move on to talking about, about Europe and the Ottoman Empire's place in it. Um, we haven't talked about women yet and the role that women played um, in Ottoman society or perhaps in elite Ottoman society, the royal part of it. Um, obviously... Uh, the idea of the harem becomes very popular among uh, European writers for reasons that are probably somewhat obvious. Um, it's a very orientalizing image. It's a very orientalizing um, description of, of 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 the role that women play in the Ottoman royal family. Um, but could we'll just talk a bit more about about the role that women played in Ottoman society in Ottoman politics. Um, in the functioning of the uh, Ottoman dynasty? Uh,
1: women are important from the very beginning into the dynasty. So the Ottomans, <coughs> excuse me, from the very beginning, the Ottomans are marrying or taking as concubines, conquered women from the, the other dynasties and kingdoms that the Ottomans are conquering. So the Ottomans marry into the Byzantine royal family and the Ottomans marry into the Serbian, royal family. So from the beginning, they use marriage as a way to build up alliances from the 14th century already. There are Serbians who are serving on the side of the Ottomans because they're connected through marriage. The Ottomans also played a role in the Byzantine civil wars uh, at the end of of the Byzantine Empire, because again, through marriage, they are connected to one side uh, against the other. So marriage and women are always playing a role and within the palace these women again I mentioned how the sultan would send his son out for the first three centuries. Sultans would send their sons out to the provinces to rule as governors to learn the arts of war and governments. He also that son would be accompanied by his mother. So there was a, a, a one woman one mother, one son policy. So when a concubine had a son, she and that son would go out, be sent out to really to be, to train um, to be the next sultan and sultan's mother. So from the beginning, women are there, women are important as political players behind the scenes. Moving into the 16th and 17th century, when we have a series of uh, sultans who are either too young so they're, they're they're minors when they're enthroned, or some are said to have mental mental problems. Women become regents. And so they're not officially, they're not legally the ruler of the empire, they're not the sultana of the empire. But behind the scenes, they're making all the decisions in the late six, well, in the early 17th century. Several of the queen mothers are making all the decisions from where to build castles to when to go to war, to who should be Grand Vizier. So women reached their really pinnacle of power in the 17th century within the royal family. So that's important um, to keep in mind. Scholars and writers at the time, a lot of them were quite against this. And this whole part of this decline literature uh, emerges from the Ottoman intellectuals themselves who complained about the fact that women were so powerful. So, So that's also why historians don't like using this decline Terminology because its origins come from um, these misogynistic writers who didn't like the way power was devolving or changing and being held in the hands of women. So that's part of it as well.
0: So I want to maybe take a big picture stance on this, on kind of one of my last questions. Um, you know, in one sense, I mean, the Ottomans are, are clearly part of Europe. <laughs> they are a European empire. Uh, they are deeply involved in European politics, um, in European culture, in European geopolitics. Um, it's one of those things where I think kind of people, people in the know, kind of know this that the Ottomans are a part of Europe. Um, but there's also a strong sense that the Ottomans and the successor state of Turkey are not European. Maybe in some cultural sense, maybe in some Strained civilizational sense, or or, certainly, you talk to someone on the street, they'd probably say uh, the Ottomans and Turkey are not European. Why do you think the idea of the Ottomans as European? um, Why do you think it's difficult for some to grapple with?
1: Well, in the beginning, the writers and and rulers and, and advisors in Western Europe and Central Europe saw the Ottomans as European, as being part of. The politics, marriage alliances, uh, military alliances. You know, in the 16th century, France and the Ottomans were conducting joint naval campaigns against some of the Italian city-states, including Rome. And we also know that in England um, allied with Morocco, which allied with the Ottomans, and they threatened Habsburg, Spain. So the Ottomans have, have been involved in European politics for a long time. And if we read what what Western Europeans wrote in the 16th century, then there's no doubt that they thought of this this commonality. At the beginning, you mentioned this famous quote of the Ottomans being the sick man of Europe. And people always focus on the sick man bit, but I like to focus on of Europe. This is just another confirmation that in the 19th century, like going all the way back to the 14th century, the Ottomans were considered to be another European kingdom. Now, the difference is, of course, that the Ottomans were Muslim. And what people today in the EU and elsewhere have a difficulty conceiving of is a Europe that is not Christian. And we see this in France, we see this in Austria, um, we see this throughout Europe. The idea that Europe has to be Christian is one of the major impediments to allowing Turkey, for example, to join the EU or, To allowing even having, even teaching a a unit on the Ottoman Empire in English secondary schools. I'm actually involved in a project now to to write a lesson, uh, a unit about the Ottomans, to integrate them into the, the secondary school curriculum here in England. But there, but I think the major roadblock is, of course, the Ottoman rulers were Muslim and they used a language which is a dead language. The Ottoman language is written in a modified Persian script. Um, It's dead, it's no longer used. This also hinders it. And also the idea of, of, of course, of religion. The Ottomans were different. They were part of Europe, but they were different. I mentioned earlier their policies of fratricide and their policies of compelling one out of 40 Christian boys to convert. This is part of it. Also the fact that the Ottomans committed genocide against their the Armenians you would think that actually this um, this would you know cause some debates in Europe about um, whether they've if whether Turkey has uh, come to terms with the past this this is one of the reasons why Turkey is not was when Turkey was engaged in accession talks one of the many stumbling blocks was the failure to come to terms with the Armenian genocide
0: perhaps it's best to end our interview with a question about legacies and specifically kind of the legacy of the Ottoman Empire. Um, Where do you see kind of the legacies of the sultans of the Ottoman Empire um, and the kind of polity they built? uh, Where do you see that today? Whether in the successor states that kind of followed from it, the geopolitics we see today, uh, lessons for current great powers, what do you see as the legacy of the Ottoman Empire? Well, we could say perhaps negatively, Negatively, one, one of the
1: legacies is how the regime in Turkey today seeks to inherit the mantle of the Ottoman past as an excuse for its military adventures in Syria and in Libya, also um, in, 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 its, in its memory politics, remembering the greatness of the Ottomans, but not coming to terms with the crimes of the Ottoman dynasty. But in a, in a positive way, I like to look at them. I live here in London and I live in London and I like to take my students in my, my postgraduate Ottoman history seminar to the Victoria and Albert Museum. And when you go into the Victoria and Albert Museum's Renaissance rooms, there is a portrait of Mehmet II, the man who conquered Constantinople. And he his portrait was painted by a Renaissance painter, Bellini. We also see medallions struck by Bellini and other Renaissance artists. In fact, in one of the medallions, we see the Byzantine emperor and Mehmed II wearing the same dress. So in two of the medallions, they're, they're, they're dressed the same way. So I like to focus on the positive and I like to think about how sometimes we here in the UK or in Europe do get it right. And we do see the Ottomans and some of the rulers as being part of our common our common history. That's what I like to focus on. I like not to think too much about what's happening in Turkey. Turkey does not own the Ottoman past. The Ottoman past is something which is diffused across 21 or 22 different countries. And so I like, to, I like it when in places like Greece, when rather than um, having mosques, turned into art centers and, and pubs and, and taverns and so on. I like it when, when they even dare reopen a mosque to Friday prayer, which the mayor of Salonika did recently for the last Ottoman mosque built in that city. So the Ottoman past, architecturally speaking, is there for us to see from Budapest through Greece, Even in a place like Salzburg, there are these these Ottoman figures that you can see in different pleasure gardens. So the Ottoman past is there. And the question is how we are going to integrate it into our own history and how much we're going to admit that the Ottomans were part of Europe and shaped our destiny.
0: So I think that's a great place to end our interview with Mark David Baer, author of The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars, and Caliphs. I actually have a couple final questions for you, which are: uh, where can people find your work, and what's next for you? Uh, my work is 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 easy to find. If you go to the Basic
1: Books website, you can find my recent, most recent book, "The Ottomans, Khan, Caesars, and Caliphs." I also have been enjoying doing a lot of podcast interviews, which which are um, for many people are. are Easier to digest than a 500 page book. So feel free to look for some of the podcasts that I have um, done. What is next? Right now, I'm enjoying um, speaking to podcasts and speaking to secondary school teachers and um, attending literary festivals and talking to people about what I've found after it's been almost 30 years of research into Ottoman language sources. So so I, I'm not going to think about the next book right now. Right now I'm I'm spreading the word about the Ottoman past to the public and not only to the academic
0: community. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at nickri Gordon. It's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to ageReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find counts other author reviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Interview Books podcast is on my favorite podcast apps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Mark, for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Nicholas, for the interview. I enjoyed it.